Well, good morning, LCM. Good morning. Today's date is January 8th, 2023, and we're progressing as a church family that is journeying under the covering of God's glory cloud. We're positioned within his presence, which allows us to traverse through trials with arms lifted high, our hearts filled with joy, and dancing through the desert with feet that are fitted with the readiness to set out at his leading. This morning, we are going to exert some force. You know, some upward force on the corners of our faces. We're going to lift up our Everybody hands. Do that. Yeah, you know what we're saying. And we're going to raise a teruah. We're going to raise a great shout of joy. All right, so there, there's something key to setting out on a journey. The true key that starts the engine of your faith is joy. Joy that not only sets its sights on the end destination of a journey, but also sees the beauty of triumph in the stages throughout the journey. Whether the stage is, uh, let's say, waiting at a stoplight, or taking the twists and turns of unexpected events, joy unlocks the true perspective that God's presence is an endless supply of provision and protection. He is limitless. So therefore, no cost is too high that he cannot match or exceed along the journey. Therefore, there is no cost too high that we cannot pay to follow him on that journey. Church, like all journeys, the minute that you set, begin to set out, opposition arises and seeks to steal your joy each and every time that you begin this process. The enemy of our faith, though, are not just the external opponents that stand in our way, the they're the enemies within you that surface as we set out, and they resurface again each time we set out into a new stage and a new place in our journey. See, Paul was a seasoned veteran, familiar with opposition when setting out, and he aimed to address these enemies in his epistle to the church in Philippians, in Philippi. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 together, and we're going to begin today in verse 14. Do everything. You know, we did some, some deep research into the Greek word for this everything. Yes, it means everything. Translators did not miss this at all. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. When we say everything, we mean everything. Well, what, what month are we in this year? January. I'm sorry, I'm getting old. I forget things sometimes. So traditionally, at the beginning of a year, there's something that we, uh, we expect, right? Beginning of the year, many of you have begun to set out. Remember that from New Year's? We set out. But as it relates to January, in the beginning of the year, you set out on a diet, That's true. Amen for Cody. Amen. We're with you. So here's what happens. I'm envisioning Cody right now. You have, a, you have found revival at aiming towards the goal of getting fit. 
getting trim, getting slim, getting healthy, taking off some pounds, decreasing your dimensions. Hopefully to get into that swimsuit by next summer. You have set in your mind a goal, right? When, when, you, when you set out on a diet, you actually have to have a goal because if you don't, you won't. Yeah, I never considered that. You have the goal of what you will look like in accomplishing the efforts of your diet that's set in stone in your mind. I mean, it's chiseled clearly before you. And now that you have that set right before you, there's only one thing you got to do. You got to commit to it. Right? Promising verbally that you're going to be on the diet does not actually accomplish the results of a diet. Well, making that commitment to set on a diet comes at a cost. There's a price to pay. It's a cost that you have agreed to pay, but it will be tested each day. And it, each day is actually too broad of a spectrum. It's every second of a day. I mean, come on, you're, you roll down the window, nice, beautiful spring afternoon, and you pass by that kolache factory that's cranking out all of those carbs and you can they smell the sugar. <laughs> you walk into a grocery store, you can smell the bread aisle from the other side of the store. He sounds like he's got experience in that. <laughs> that just, just didn't tad. sound random to me. Just a tad. We're tested each day when cravings of the old way of life try to eat away at your commitment. They're always there. So what is the first thing you begin to physically experience when you set on a diet? Hunger. Hunger, right? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of answers going on right now. Angry. You get angry. Hangry. That's what I am. Well, I forgot about that bag of Oreos underneath my bed. How about that? He's talking to you, Justin Linton. <laughs> yeah, some people sleep walk. Other people sleep eat. <laughs> well, the, the physical action is sometimes what we can hear as you're sitting next to each other in church or at fellowship. You can hear the other person's stomach grumbling. Blurred. Lincoln's got it. This grumbling is occurring in the center of your being, in the belly of your soul. Well, Paul is saying do everything without grumbling for a reason. What was that Greek word for grumbling again? The Greek word, as best I can remember in this moment, is a word called gungosmos. Gungosmos, 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 gungosmos. It is, it is designed to be, here's another good word for you, an onomatopoeia. It's designed to sound like what it really is, like the word murmur. When you murmur, that's defining what it actually sounds like. Think about how would you say that someone is whispering something to you? We would imitate whispering by saying, that's the word, is an internal repetitious utterance that's going on. That's actually the word for grumbling in the Greek. So he's saying do everything without this 
It's almost silent voice that's going on. It's, it's the voice of what's happening on the inside, but it's just faintly coming out of the mouth. These are, these are the, the internal thoughts and the very repetitious of meditations on things that we crave other than what we've committed to in Christ. And look, there are tons of examples that we could chase for the next four hours. But here are some of the more apparent ones. You, you know what it's like. When you set out to intentionally go on the next step in action of what God has said to do, there's that internal grumbling of comparison. Let me relate it to a diet, right? You set out to go on a diet, just say keto. And you begin to have that comparison as you attend a potluck or fellowship or home group meeting. You look at somebody else's plate. You look at your plate. There is a clear disparity between the two. Why do they get to eat what they want, pile it on their plate, and not gain a single ounce? If I even smell a carb, I gain 15 pounds. It's coming. <laughs> you know what's happening in that comparison? It's not their problem. It's not their fault that you are grumbling on the inside. You are making a carnal comparison between what God has told you to do and what God has allowed them to do. And you're really feeling the pain of telling your flesh no. Everybody say no. No. That's what you tell your flesh. No. In fact, the other day, I was uh, traversing through my, my dining room. And I, I keep some things on our dining room table. It's like, you know, 12 feet long, so you can put a lot of stuff on it. And I see this white rectangular box. I'm like, huh, what's that? Did Ruby bring over some more keto desserts? This is a blessing. So I go to open it up, and I'm full of anticipation and expectation. And behold... It was the snacks of Satan. It was a box full of donuts. Chocolate with sprinkles and glaze and maple glaze and bacon and maple glaze. I just opened up the pathway to Pandora's box. And here's the conundrum. I am all alone. <laughs> oh God, please take this cup from me. <laughs> this box of donuts. I learned something real quick. I, I stopped and said, no, I remember the repeated levels of pain physically and in my soul if I even you know, dab my finger on the edge of that glaze. And I felt the Lord speak something to me very profound. He said, donut minus you is don't. Just a revelation from heaven I want to pass along. 
It did. Wait, wait, wait. No. No. Don't encourage him on that. Come on. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Come on, people. We're talking about grumbling. We're talking about the things that are on the inside of you. If someone else is hearing it, that's not the intention. It's just become so loud inside of you that someone close to you can't help but hearing it. The second word in this is arguing. You know what that is? That's the external dialogue. Yep. That's an actual dialogue. The Greek under that word is more about dialoguing than it is just about whispering something. What has been started off inside of your heart is now just full-fledged in your conversations. This reminds us of Luke chapter 6 and verse 45. It says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. You may be wondering, how can you tell the difference? I'm so glad that you asked that. Because the next sentence tells us exactly. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. No, I didn't really mean that. You just misunderstood. Oh, so the problem is with my understanding rather than what the issue of your heart is that's now coming out loud. It's a dialogue that you have had that is now external. No, 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 no. I'm not trying to fight for my own point here. I'm just trying to give you some details and explain things to you. Now, out of the mouth, it speaks what the heart is actually full of. Wow. It's pretty easy to tell what you're really thinking. Those things that slip out and you want to say that's a joke. Yeah, Proverbs says you can't do that because it is actually revealing what your heart is. So you're saying that out of your mouth, people can tell what you're full of? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be one of those days. Yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. Just making sure. So we're saying that the internal grumbling of the soul is going to inevitably overflow to the mouth with contentious, ungodly dialogue. See, there's a great reason that Paul is stating in Philippians, do everything without grumbling or a contentious dialogue that begins to come out of her mouth. These things are revealing what's on the inside of us. Let's take a look at verse 15 in Philippians 2. So that you may become blameless and pure. Okay, let's go back to verse 14. Verse 14 says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Verse 15 says, so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Through the process of not giving in to grumbling or arguing, you can become blameless and pure. You can be showing yourself to be a child of God, and not just a child of God, but one without fault. The problem is, is in our warped and crooked generation, what we're talking to you today about seems like almost nothing. Like, why are you starting off here, pastors? Because we know that the path that God has set us out on is an important path. And we can also tell you, even ahead of time, that one of the things that wants to start happening, the moment that you begin to set out, is not only external opposition, but those things on the inside of you that starts to grumble. That starts to come out as contentious, contentious arguing. But we are here today to tell you that you may become blameless and pure. Amen. Then, somebody say then. Once you've defeated grumbling and arguing, once you are becoming blameless and pure, then you shine among this crooked and warped generation. You shine like stars in the heavens. 
there's a, a luminous factor. You will become radiant as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor or even diet in vain. The point here is that it's through this process of crushing our internal and external carnal voice that we become blameless and pure. But there's a self-deception. Nobody disagrees with what I said. Does anybody disagree with it, honestly? No. But there's a self-deception that keeps us from actually fulfilling it. It's that when we're relying on our own carnal contentiousness, that we are trying to make ourselves blameless and pure in our own strength. I don't want to do it the way that God said. See, this happens when you're talking about diet and exercise. Let's go back to that. Is that all right? We're going to go back to that. So what happens when you receive encouragement to stick to your commitment of diet and exercise? But I am. Yes, your brother is encouraging you not to pick up that thing that you just picked up. And your response is a contentious argument that says, I'm already doing what I'm supposed to do. Nope. (laughs) If you were, you wouldn't need the encouragement. How about another one? How dare he tell me that I can't eat what I want? I don't know why I put that in the, like a wife receiving instruction from her husband. I, that just, hypothetical. That's just, that just hypothetical. Don't they know and appreciate that I'm trying as hard as I can? Yeah, see, <laughs> see what you can't tell on camera is that everybody's smiling. Everybody, no, that, that happened. But what happens in this process is when you put away the grumbling and the arguing, you become blameless and pure, but it is as you hold firmly to the word of life that we've set out on. The boasting of accomplishment is only seen after faithful adherence. You realize that, let let me just put it in me. I want encouragement before I faithfully adhere to something. I want encouragement because I'm trying, which means that I haven't yet done it or shown any faithful adherence, but I want you to give me credit for wanting to do it right. Shouldn't that credit me something? No. Then, at the end of the process, I will be able to boast in the accomplishment, but it's after the faithful adherence to the word of life that we've set out on. It's after the faithful adherence to the commitment that we made, and it's only then that we're able to eat the fruit of our dieting, I mean our running and our laboring that will actually produce what it's supposed to produce. You know, since we're talking about journey, let's not put it in the framework of Israel. They're coming out of Egypt, right? They're journeying towards the promised land. Did they go by bus? No. By car? By horse? By train? They went by foot. So there's grumbling and arguing when we travel through the conveniences of our modern-day transportation. Can you imagine making that trip by foot and the kind of things that would surface? They were solely dependent as well on God's constant and daily supernatural provision of water and bread. And yet, throughout most of their journey, It was rife with grumbling and arguing. Everybody turn to Numbers chapter 20. We're going to pick up in verse 2.
Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die there? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. Are you guys catching this conversation? The nation of Israel has set out on their journey. They're now in the process of this. They've gone beyond grumbling. They've gone beyond arguing. And now they're just quarreling. They're no longer even trying to dialogue, which is some hope of someone responding. This is not even needing a response. They just want to say what they want to say. See, this quarreling is the grumbling and arguing that surfaces from your heart, hating the requirement to pay the cost of setting out. There is a cost that's associated with setting out. There's a great cost, and you have to get in the habit of paying that cost constantly. Let's go back to verse 3. Put verse 3 on the screen. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. We're in Numbers 20. So the very first thing that comes to my mind is Numbers 16 and Korah's rebellion. You know, the one where the earth opened up, speaking about diets, the earth opened up and swallowed people. And then fire fell on others that didn't get swallowed. That's the group that they want to appeal to. I would have been better that I ended up like the people who were rebelling against God's plan and God's people. It had been better for me that I do this. By the way, when you're in a state of quarreling or arguing or grumbling, you think it's logical. It's never logical because your arguments and your grumbling and your quarreling is not about logic. It's about the fact that you hate having to continually pay a price. That's what's going on here. It's almost like you want your comfort foods. I would rather eat something that makes me feel better right now. You know, that internal stuff, that internal growth. I want my internal to feel good because it's designed to help us avoid actually having to pay the cost, to postpone that paying of cost that we have to do. Now, you guys are familiar with instant mashed potatoes, right? That's a comfort food. <laughs> a minute and a half with half a stick of butter and some water in the microwave is that instant relief for what feels like you're decayed. See, some of y'all are like, I'm hungry now. Can we? Can... You know, church today is going to be for an additional two hours. <laughs> and put this to practice. Look at verse four. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? You know, essentially what they're saying is that on this journey, there is no life. And ultimately, you know what it really is? They're looking at what's coming ahead, and they have a, a deep fear of their own failure. Going back to the diet, I'll try and not be able to lose the weight that I'm supposed to. I can already forecast that right now. I mean, I've tried before. Because I stood on the scale 10 times today, and I see absolutely no movement. And you eventually get to the point where you say, why did I even start to set out on this? 
And that, that begins to turn then outward in this blame shifting. Much like what we're seeing here, they begin to make it Moses' fault. Make it their leader's fault. So that my own failure can also be Moses' fault. You're the one that led me into this journey, and now you're the one that's going to be at blame because of my anticipated failure along it. Take a look at verse 5. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It's not just that it's your fault that we got out of Egypt. By the way, which we were in slavery. We were in bondage and we were crying out to God. But it's your fault that we left Egypt. And it's also your fault that you brought us to this terrible place. Really what I'm saying is I just think I'm entitled to something better than this. I think that I should have something that it's better easier, more conducive to me, and I don't like the fact that you brought me to this terrible place. Again, this is in the context of setting out, church. What we know is that these are, if they're not already occurring, which they are in many cases, these are the things that are about to occur inside of your own minds and your own hearts, because the inevitable process of setting out, we see it in the text of Scripture. They begin to set out, and the very next verses, they begin to grumble. They begin to start complaining, and this is how they or complaining. By the way, you brought us out of Egypt to this terrible place, and uh, there's no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates. I mean, there's not even here on this anything in this heavenly diet that I can even eat right now anyway. I can't even eat it. And what are you really saying? That where God has brought you, where God has led you, where God has caused you to set out, it's just the fact that God, not even God, is treating us fairly in this moment. Now, these are not any things that we want to say out loud, but it begins with grumblings, and it comes out in things like this where we don't like where we are, we don't like the fact that we have to move, but God is calling us in a process of setting out. So grumbling and arguing, it is a huge red flag that points that ultimately you don't want to pay the cost of setting out. It's all that churning. All that dialogue that says, I don't want to pay the cost. But here's the direction for us as a church. As families and teams within this body of believers, we have committed to paying the cost. We will not have a costless conquest. As a church, we are committed to paying the cost. In fact, that's the title of today's message. Paying the cost. Everybody say that. Paying the cost. And here's what paying the cost does. Paying the cost as you set out consecrates you for conquest. I'll say it again. Paying the cost as you set out consecrates you for conquest. Take a look at Joshua chapter 1 with us as we talk about this cost of setting out. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 10. It says this. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people... Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in and to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In the process of the Israelites setting out, now we're an entirely different generation. We're now with Joshua in command. As a matter of fact, in the verses just prior to what we read, Joshua is reinstated. He is given a re-announcement of his leadership that 
Be bold. Be strong, for the Lord your God is with you. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. You'll be successful as you are meditating on the Word of God day and night. And then this is the very next step. Joshua is commanding officers to go throughout the camp, to go into the midst of the camp. In other words, they're addressing their internal state as a people group. They're addressing those things. Go right to the heart of the matter. Go right to the stomach of the matter and figure out exactly what's going on here. And then the command comes that you might prepare, prepare your provisions. See, this is the people of God through Joshua and Eleazar receiving direction to command something. They're learning to command their inner thoughts and the external dialogue to pull up the, pen, the tent pegs of provision. They've got to get ready. In three days, this is going to happen. You need to get ready in what's going on. You need to prepare yourself. Leave behind the comforts of one stage, and you're going to move on into paying the cost of the journey to get to the next stage. By the way, we've been talking about this with a lot of you. The concept of in three days, you're going to pass over. This is Joshua demonstrating prophetic insight on what's about to happen. In three days, a new stage of the journey begins so that you might possess the land. It doesn't mean that the day that they put their foot there, they possess it in the natural. It means that they have the promise and there's prophetic insight that they will actually begin to have to pay the cost in a different way, even as they're preparing now. See, there's a constant cost here, and we're going to see how the story continues as we pick it up in verse 12. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. So for the Transjordanian tribes, Joshua begins to enumerate what it looks like when men of God are paying the cost to set out. This is a commitment that you're already made, one that you already agreed to and have started to live in. Now is the time of paying the cost. Let's talk about the cost for those men of valor. What did that look like? That looked like them beginning their journey and travels. They're heading to war. Their separation from their household, their land, and their possessions. They're just armed. And they know that affliction is what lies before them. And there's no certainty of how long this conquest is actually going to take. They're just stepping forward in obedience to go and lay their lives down for the inheritance of their brothers. Well, that's for the men of valor. What about the families? What about those families that stayed behind? They're separated from the head of their household, their source of provision and protection, right? Some of you ladies know that right now. Your, wife, your, your husbands are abroad and accomplishing a mission for God, and yet you're having to rely on the presence of God to supply all your needs at all times. And there are afflictions and difficulties that do happen at home. Some very minor and some that are major. But both men of valor and the families of the men of valor are required to pay the cost of what it takes for an entire family and nation to set out. 
affliction, difficulties, uncertainties are all a concrete foundation of what it takes to pay the cost as you set out. See, church, we are often very, uh, we are always directing things at the men of the households because it's true. If the men get it right, then their families get it right. That's just the way that this works. But do you hear that the paying the cost of setting out is an entire family endeavor? That no one gets to skip paying the cost of setting out. Everyone, husbands, wives, children, everyone is required to pay the price of difficulty, of affliction, of uncertainty. Everyone must do that. See, because these internal enemies begin to war against us. The things that keep us from wanting to pay that cost of affliction is one of the very first things that it is, is we like our comfort. Does anybody, can anybody just go ahead and be honest? We want our comfort and our convenience. We want it promised. As a matter of fact, I want it guaranteed if we can just be really honest with each other. I want to know that this is going to produce comfort and convenience, except we know better than that, and yet internally there's grumbling because it's not as comfortable and convenient as we want. If, as a matter of fact, I'd go as far as to say if you haven't been inconvenienced, if you haven't been made uncomfortable, then you have not yet really set out on anything that God wants you to. We want to hold the convenience and the comfort of what's familiar to us of what's known, of what makes us feel comfortable, rather than staying in step with the Spirit and setting out on the exact path that He leads us. Husbands, if you are the kind of man that wants to protect your family from having to pay the price, you don't mind jumping out of bed to go help somebody, but you would never require your family. You are robbing them of paying the cost, and you are actually robbing them of setting out with you in the journey, through the stages. See, that's, that cannot be the case. Let us help you with some understanding these comforts a little bit more. I want the comfort of being absolutely assured. I mean, I want to be guaranteed of the outcome. But I want that before that I've had to pay the cost of affliction in the process. I want the guarantee before I step into something. Now, I don't even know what inside I really want that guarantee to be, except for the fact that I want it to feel nice and comfortable. I want to have 100% assurity. I want to have no doubt. I want to have all the situation and all the details in the right place before I step out, except that's not how the kingdom of God works. Lord, I want you to follow my plan for your will. Seems rather logical, right? No, no, that's not logic. Look, e even what, what Wade and I are doing right now, which is you know, just a fraction of what ministry looks like. I want the comfort of knowing that I'll be at my best mental state whenever I go to preach. I mean, I'm making sure that I haven't drinking enough water, that I go to bed on time. If something comes up that's an inconvenience or causing me to be uncomfortable, I get all kind of frenzied and frantic that I will be mentally absent as I preach and begin to steer the whole church in the wrong direction and drive us into a ditch. This is what's going through my mind. 
And particularly in the season that we're in right now, I mean, I can hear echoing out as we, we preach, that, that cough due to cold that has set upon everybody. The sniffling, the aches, the pains, that repetition of flu-like symptoms that comes around every three to four weeks. You're trying to, you know, you need a CPAP machine to be able to sleep at night. You walk over and try to borrow it from Spencer, but he's, he's using it. I want to be in that comfortable position where nothing requires me to pay the cost of, of sacrificing my own wants and what I've determined or what I need to accomplish God's will. Laying that down, I then begin to get a better understanding that I want the resurrection power without having the uncomfortable climbing upon the cross of my own crucifixion. But when I do begin to embrace that, when I do begin to voluntarily and joyfully climb upon that crucifixion of my own self and my wants, there I find the instantaneous power of God providing what I could not provide for myself. Let's all turn together to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Say paying the cost as you're turning there. We're helping point out those internal grumblings, those contentious arguments that we have, that quarreling that we have that actually keeps us from succeeding in setting out, that keeps us from paying the cost. One of those things is finding comfort. Look at what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Did you guys get that? Our God, there are many names that we try to understand God by. One of them here in this passage that Paul is giving is the God of all comfort. Man, that's amazing. But did you catch the important part that I paused on? He comforts us in all our affliction. I desire to have his comfort without any affliction. I want the afflictionless version of comfort, but that's not where the God of all comfort resides. He resides in the difficulty, in the affliction, in that trial, that test, that problem that's going on. That's where the God of all comfort resides, and that's where you know what his name is. That's when you find out that he is the God of all comfort in every situation. Man, I oftentimes want to be a steward of my own comfort. I want the comfort without the affliction. But you can never avoid paying the cost the way that God has. You pay that cost through the affliction and through the difficulty. And do you realize what the focus of God being the God of comfort in your affliction is? Look at the next words there. So that who comforts us in all our affliction, so that. So you get to keep your comfort be really, really comfortable, settle back. It's not even remotely the reason 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. See, when we avoid paying the cost of the affliction, we avoid having something to actually give to someone else. That God of all comfort is manifest to you, and then you are the living embodiment of that comfort to someone else. When people go through difficulties, it is not a comfort for you to walk up and share how you have also gone through difficulties. Unless you're sharing with them the comfort that God brought. How about you focus on the comfort that God brought? Me too. I, had, I, I also had a difficulty like you did. So what? Did you find the comfort of the Lord in the affliction or did you get around the comfort part? Did, did you get around the affliction part so you missed the comfort of God? See, what we're able to give is because God's focus is for us to give comfort. Oh, there'll be times when we need comfort. But for the body of Christ, we are looking to give comfort in the affliction because that's how God does it. You know, one of the primary practical ways that that happens, and you guys can think about your lives right now, the comfort that you are able to share now that was a result of God comforting you in your afflictions comes from your understanding of probably a singular verse in the Word that resonates with your soul and then provides the means of comfort with your revelation to somebody else. See, that, that's the importance of embracing with joy the afflictions that we participate in. Let's pick up in verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. You see the connectedness of the body of Christ happening through these afflictions. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So the whole point that God is aiming you at in your afflictions is that your attitude is that it's for their comfort and not mine. When you make it about their comfort it allows you to have proper perspective on your afflictions. So you and I experience this heavenly, supernatural comfort as we're patiently paying the cost to endure the sufferings and afflictions on others' uh, behalf. This is what gives us hope as a church. This is the guarantee that we are really desiring to know how to pay the cost in setting out. Because paying the cost, particularly during afflictions, as you set out, is what consecrates you for the conquest that God is putting you on. Turn with us to Joshua chapter 3. Turn with us to Joshua chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 1. Say paying the cost as you're turning there. Joshua 3.1 says this, Then Joshua rose early in the morning. And they set out, Nassah, from Shittim. 
And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of the three days that we just talked about in Joshua 1, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. You shall nassah. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. See, Joshua, leading in this generation that he's in, he's saying, you guys, I want you to do something. I'm having officers that are going to go tell you to follow the presence of God just like we did in the desert for 40 years. When you see the ark of God going out, this is exactly what it was like when the cloud began to move. They were looking for it. Why was there a little bit of a distance there? So they could see the movement of God's presence and respond. They were hearing the trumpet call, the announcement of these officers to them, and they were able to move forward. They're following that Ark of the Covenant. They are following God's presence. They are learning to keep in step even as the presence of God has set out. Did you guys catch that in verse 4? Is that still on the screen? Yes. For you have not passed this way before. One of the problems as we begin to set out is oftentimes God will lead you into a place that you've never been before. Even in the last day, eight days, has anybody been like your pastors and said, yeah, I'm required to do something and I have no idea how to do it? I have no idea, and I don't mean vaguely, I mean like in your life. Helping certain people in the church, I'm like, I have no idea what this information is. No idea. But I know how to get to the answer. I know how to follow. I know how to pay the cost of setting out so that I can get to the right answer. See, I've never been this way before. I've never been a 48-year-old pastor who's in a team of pastors. There are new lands that God has for us. Which means what? There might and will be new enemies. There's new afflictions that are before you. See, and more than just leaving the comforts, these people here are now at a point of paying the cost to overcome the fears that are inherent anytime you attempt something new. If only I knew how to do this better. I get, mu- I get 10 times more fearful, faithless, when something is new and I've never done it before. I'm required to step forward and do it, but I don't know what it's going to be. I don't even know what to to anticipate. I don't know how to prepare myself because it's new and I've never been this way. But you know what the answer is in a new land? It's exactly what you learned from the last example. What you learned was to follow God's presence, and it was his provision. It was his power. It was his leading anyway, and now I'm just learning it, and and I'm more aware of my own faithlessness and fear. So I have to step out and follow it. Joshua says, by the way, Joshua's saying, you have never passed this way before. Somebody say you. Joshua's talking to people, you have never passed this way before. What does that mean? Oh, not for the people. Why is Joshua saying it that way? Wait a minute. There's a generational issue here. Joshua's saying, you people have never been in this land. But you know what? I have. I've been there. I've spied it out, as a matter of fact. I know what it looks like. 
I know what God is going to do. I know the goodness of what God has if you'll just pay the cost and keep going forward in what he has. See, I've already seen it, and I'm pulling you along in this process. It's almost like there's a father-to-son relationship. It's almost like there's a discipleship process that's going on for people who have been this way before. And God puts you in a group of people where there are men who know what it's like to launch a church. You know what you should do about that? You should go attach yourself to them. I think God's going to cause me to launch a church. Yeah, but you've never been that way before. But I might be able to find some men who have. See, this is what Joshua is talking to them about. I have. I'm telling you what God has done for me, and I'm giving you the courage to know that he'll do it in your generation. I can tell you what has happened. I can tell you what it's going to look like. You're worried because you haven't, but I have. This is what Joshua is telling them, and this is what, we're, what it, it means to be paying the cost as you set out. Church, are you committed to paying the cost to set out? Yeah. Let's go on to verse 14. Of Joshua 3. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So the people are moving their feet in faith, actively seeking to pay the cost to set out. And the Jordan was at flood stage. We're all very familiar with, with this story. But did you connect the, the wording here? Flood stage is at the time of harvest. You know, the greatest amount of harvest of righteousness of our lives is going to come during the stage of being flooded with impossibilities. How else is God actually going to get the glory if it's done when that river is just a small creek that we take one skip to jump over? The greatest harvest of righteousness is found when you're flooded with impossibilities. This entire event was meant to consecrate their own hearts of fear and faithlessness as they actually begin to set out. The fear and faithlessness of not having enough before, during, or after you get your feet moving. That inner and outer cry that says, I don't have what it takes. I don't have the insight. I don't have the vision. I don't have the anointing. I don't have the clarity. Will God do for us what he has done for our generations past? You know, we experience this as fathers in the faith. As we meet with you guys, you look and see what we do, and you're wondering, how did you learn to do what you do? Yeah. And ever, when, you, when you see us demonstrate that, it immediately evokes a fear and a faithlessness that I can never be like you. And that is a complete and total lie. You want to know how we learn to do what we do? We were paying the cost of pioneering away, working as a team, and depending on God to show us the next step and making many failures after failures, but learning from them each time, getting back up on our feet and putting into practice 
the word that God gave us for that situation. You know, what you see us able to do as we sit in on your team unity meetings or in a counseling session, what you see us do in five minutes, yes, it may take you five hours to do the same, but that's not where you're going to stay. Because of the repetition of paying the cost as you set out, that time frame gets less and less. And when you're standing there in that situation again, you know instantly what you should do because it's what you have been trained to do. See, God is proving to this house that he is with you. He's with us. He's with you. Joshua 3, 7, it says very plainly, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that you may know that as I was with Moses, as I was with previous generations, so I will be with you. Isn't that at the heart of most of our fears? We see a way of life in this church that some loathe and some love. But for those who are here, you're saying, will he do it again in my generation? Will he do it again in me? I see what he did there, but can it be possible that God will be with me like he was with them? If you've ever had that thought, I wonder if God will be with me like he's with, and then fill in the blank of a pastor. If you've ever had that thought, raise your hand. Yeah. You want to know the answer? The answer is yes. It's no secret. You pay the cost. You pay it just like we did. And guess what happens? God shows himself to be the God of comfort for you. God shows himself to be the one who is with you just like he was with past men of God. And even beyond the ones that we can see. Man, when I think about this, I think about Revelation chapter 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and I'm the last. I'm the one that started this, and I'm the one that will make sure that it will be completed. You are a chain in this. You're setting out in stages. What it is today is not what it's going to be, and I know how to get you from the beginning to the end because he is the one who started it, and he is the one who will bring it to completion. He does that at every stage. He does that in every generation, and he says, fear not because I will be with you. Somebody say, God is with me. This is what it looks like to pay the cost. We're going to continue to pay the cost because paying the cost as you set out, it's the very thing that consecrates you for the conquest that lies ahead. All right, everybody turn to Joshua chapter 5 and say, paying the cost as you turn. Now, we talked about comfort. We talked about fear and faithlessness. Now, we're going to talk about circumcision. Are you ready, Rob? Okay. Verse two. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) A second time. Yes. More is always required. But I want to focus in on something before we get to the circumcision a second time. The Lord said to Joshua to make flint knives. From a fatherly perspective, what this looks like is leading the second generation by first fashioning a sharpened stone to remove the flesh that didn't belong. 
Let me put it more, more plainly. Utilizing the sharp double-edged sword of God's word that then cuts and establishes a covenant in the sons while leaving their manhood intact. This is what fathers do. You go and make flint knives. See, the father is paying the cost to get a sharpened word so the son will reciprocate paying that cost by having his flesh removed. This to me sounds like Colossians 1.24. Now rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church. This is still being seen in reflection of that second generation. That they hadn't yet been circumcised along the way up to the point of reaching the Jordan. And there was something still lacking. And conquest could not begin until there was a consecration through circumcision. Verse 8 of Joshua 5. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Amen to that. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Church, do you realize that when it says that they were circumcised the second time, do you realize that was talking about collectively as a group of people? Okay? Collectively. That's what the passage is talking about, the, past, the part that we haven't read. They're talking about your generation hasn't paid the same price that the original generation paid. So a second time for the people is different. It is an easy thing for us to watch the sacrifices that have been made, the costs that have been paid by other generations, and be blessed by it. Somebody say amen to being blessed by it. But it doesn't keep you from making the same, have to pay the same cost. I see what Pastor Eric or Pastor Matt, I see what the pastors have done. Praise God, I'm getting blessed by it. But you still have to pay the same cost that they did. You don't get to skip the cost of it. What that really is showing is, man, I really like the blessing from that. I don't want to have to pay the cost of circumcising my own heart. Man, I love the benefits of what you've done. Thank you for that. Thank you for your service. But we want that in replacement. And actually, it shows that there's an entitlement inside of us. Hey, what I've paid is already enough, and I'm going to kind of piggyback on what they've already paid. So I'm good. I've, I've paid enough at this. Haven't I done enough to receive from the Lord? You know, what really parallels in this passage is not only just personally interacting with the word that circumcises your heart, but allowing fathers in the faith to make a sharpened flint to circumcise your heart. That you want to go circumcise yourself in isolation. Instead, presenting yourself so that the fathers who can teach you, show you, and lead you can actually use the word to help remove that flesh. See, the cutting away of your pride is what causes that joy of having your entire reproach rolled away. That's what we're doing here is we're actually getting ready. And you know what happens next in the story is getting, they literally go into the first Passover in the new land. The circumcision of their heart prepares them to set out on their Passover. The Passover is there. It is to remind them. 
You were circumcised so that you can experience the life that Passover has. You were circumcised not to just experience the life, but you were circumcised that you might become the life. You might become of the same fruitfulness as what Passover is. Real ministry doesn't occur in convenience. It doesn't occur without paying a high cost that we might be the Passover that that circumcision might produce something in us that is not only a blessing to the nations, but causes them to do the exact same thing that we have done. We are taking this and moving it forward because paying the cost, as you set out, always consecrates you for a conquest. Let's take a look at Joshua chapter 6 together. Verse 15 is where we'll pick up. On the seventh day they rose early, and at dawn of day they and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So paying the cost of consecration is what prepared them to set out on conquest. And the way that they were being set out on conquest was going into conflict with Jericho with a shout. Don't march around the city and try to undermine and collapse it. Don't march around the city and try to push in some bricks or push in some stones so you can find a breach. I want you to march around it with just your breath. Just a voice. What this begins to look like and addresses in, in us are the injustices that surface when God sets us out to go into battle without the initial exertion of our own strength and might. I want you to go face this giant that has been in your heart, in your life for years, but I don't want you to use your own logic, your own strength, or your own plan to go to war with it. I want you to start with the breath of your prayer. I want you to walk around this multiple times. And not just like, you know, that prayer that people do at Thanksgiving, it's like three seconds long, but that arduous, long-suffering prayer, that one that's offered up out of desperation. James 5.16 applies to this, that the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. So as you're praying, your prayers are causing effect. The wall didn't fall down until the seventh day, but they hadn't been paying the cost of all seven days. It would have never come down. Pay the cost through your prayer. Let the Ruach of God fill your lungs and send up into the heavenly realms the powerful and effective prayer on others' behalf. See, we begin with the breath of God coming out of our mouth, and then when these barriers are broken down, then we have the opportunity to rush in with the sword of the Spirit and begin to destroy the works of the devil that are now made vulnerable for attack. Let's see how the people of Israel did that in verse 20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. Didn't just fall, but it fell down flat so that the people went into the city, every man straight on in before him, and they captured the city. 
Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Church, what we're talking to you today about is the fact that every time you set out, there's always a cost that's before every man and every woman and every family. Now, we know that most people won't pay that. What we're trying to make sure is that this group of people does pay the cost. That you're not hindered by those internal grumblings or those external dialogues that keep you from actually stepping forward. Joshua did it. The children of Israel have done it. Many men, all the men and God, uh, men and women of God through the generations have done it. And we must now take up our stage of setting out and do the same. We've got to prepare our hearts for the loss of great ambitions, the loss of our desires, the loss of our security. And we've got to engage in the process that leads to the actual promise of real resurrection power. But it only occurs for those who are paying the cost all along the journey. See, paying this cost of confronting your enemies only with the shout of God, that's not a very good battle plan if you look at it, is it? Except it's a perfect battle plan. It causes you to pay a cost constantly. I'm going to just trust the Lord. I'm standing out here. I've got a trumpet. That's all I got. And the vast majority of the people in the nation of Israel had nothing but their own voice. Well, what good can one little voice do? It can tear down the walls of your oppressor if you are doing exactly what God has said. And not just tear them down a little bit. Not just make them rocky. But knock them down flat. Church, we are able to, with a shout of joy, we are able to crush what the enemy's doing. But we have to have the faithfulness that just says, I'll keep going around this, this city. I'll keep walking and I will keep silent when I must keep silent. But I will shout for joy until I become hoarse. I will lose my own voice because I will shout and keep shouting until the walls fall down. And then the men go straight in. And there are things that are devoted to destruction. They put to death all of their selfish ambition. They put to death all of the envy that might be there because they have actually paid the cost. You know, when you've been doing good on a diet for long enough, after a while, you've made progress and you're like, no, the donut's not worth it. No, I've paid too high of a cost. I, are you kidding me? You, I'm going to lose my, I'm going to lose on that it's not that good. There's nothing about that that will satisfy like all of this faithful adherence to what God. Man, I'm going forward. God is moving me out. I'm setting out in this stage and I'm being victorious. I've watched the wall fall. I'm surely not going to stop now. I'm surely not going to now be full of fear. I'm going to continue to go with this shout of joy and watch this. I will not have a costless conquest that I'm a part of. That's not what the kingdom is made of. It's made of men and women who have not only set out, but they are constantly paying the cost of setting out. You paid the cost yesterday. Praise God. We're proud of you. Do it again today. But, but I've walked around this wall many times and it hasn't yet fallen. You listen for the sound of the trumpet because the presence of God is leading you in front of you. Listen for that sound of the trumpet to go along and then shout for joy because victory is at hand. We have a church of men and women who know how to shout for joy. Yeah. 
Look, stand to your feet. Having joy while paying the cost is what makes your life a fragrant offering to the Lord. I want you to get this. If you didn't get anything else that we covered, I want you to know that as you set out, you're going to have to pay a cost. And as you do, do it with joy. In fact, do it with great joy. Do it with shouts of joy. Let that be the definition and goal and defining factor of how you go about every day, being led by the Spirit, being directed by the Word, and interaction with each other. So this is what we're going to do for our altar time. As you stand here, you are going to, with joy, pay the cost of crucifying your comfort, laying it before Him and replacing it with the joy of of walking in affliction. You're going to lay aside that fear and faithlessness, and you're going to take up actionable steps of faith to do what seems impossible for you to do because you know your God is with you and he's surrounded you with other men and women of God to help you. And you'll do that with joy. In addition to that, you are going to allow the word of God to remove that flesh that doesn't belong and particularly as it comes from sharpened words from other brothers. You're going to joyfully accept that word and you're going to put your foot on the neck of offense that may typically rise up whenever that happens. You replace it with a thanksgiving of receiving that. And in doing so, you're going to get rid of all selfish ambition by making it your ambition to give others the comfort that God is giving you. So look, as we pray... Let great shouts of joy fill this house. Let's let rejoicing define our time right now. Mighty God, we lift up your name that's above every name. Lord, we thank you for your word that is living and active inside of us. And we say, we thank you for allowing us to pay the cost to follow you. You are a great God. You are eternal and majestic. And Lord, we thank you for this body that we get to celebrate with. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen.